Hey, it's me. And if you've been listening to this podcast for any amount of time, you know what I'm here to do. I'm here to tell you to go to patreon.com slash Ontario Lad or ontariolad.ca. It's a great website. And hit the Patreon link and subscribe to Ontario Lad for less than the price of a cup of coffee or more if you choose. We have several amazing tiers of subscription that you can subscribe to if you want more people to hear the kind of great discussions like we're having today on, you know, like why our democracy is failing and how we can get more progressive policies implemented. It's a, it's a good thing to do. All right. On the pod. Welcome to Ontario Lab, a podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs hosted by recovering political and policy staff right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin, and today we are doing our second book club, tentatively titled Loud Reads, which I think is a big step up from the first tentative title, which was just Ontario Lad Book Club. And on episodes of Loud Reads, we bring you interviews with authors of some of the best Canadian books on politics and public policy, talk about the ideas and the people behind them. So if you haven't already, you can listen to the episode Alexi did a few weeks back with Canadian political scientist and Donald Savoie on the disintegration of our public institutions. We'll post the link to that in the podcast description. But if you like the disintegration of institutions as a discussion theme, boy howdy, do we have a book for you this week. I'm so excited to welcome political theorist, columnist for McLean's and the Washington Post, postdoctoral fellow at the University of Ottawa, and author of Too Dumb for Democracy, Why We Make Bad Political Decisions and How We Can Make Better Ones, David Mosscroft. David, welcome to Ontario Loud. Thanks for having me. Also, that, that's a great name for a book club. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, I appreciate it. It was... Uh, um, you know, we, we, we workshopped it up a little bit from just, you know, the name of our podcast with, with book club attached. Naming things is hard. You know, people, it's funny people who, who just sort of consume stuff and, and, and what, what a, what a blessed way to be in the world just to consume. I'm, I'm envious of people who can just consume, but when you've got to come up with this stuff, sometimes you realize that it's extraordinarily difficult to come up with good titles. And the same goes for headlines. I should say that you also have a podcast of your own called Open to Debate, which is a regular listen of mine. I will heartily recommend it to those who listen to us. Lots of actually super relevant discussion to what we're going to be talking about today. And I took the title from the name of a book. <laughs> it wasn't just a uh, just an, uh, an open call for you know debate me cowards. Well, you know there isn't one of the challenges with the with the uh, the podcast is that there isn't enough debate, and I am loath to engineer it or to force it. So there's some, but mostly it's just a public policy and social, political, economic phenomenon discussion podcast. But I took the the title of it from uh, the name of a book, Open to Debate, which is about William F. Buckley and his show Firing Line. Now, that talk about a great title. Firing Line is a fantastic first show, as is Ontario Loud. But, but again, it, it's people, people who listen, it's hard to name things. And, I, and in fact, I'm, I'm sure many of these listeners are in politics. When you go through the political names of programs, you see how many bad ones there are. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Um, I, I find particularly in Canada, you know, like, you know, a firing line, I, you know, I want to watch firing line, you know, do I want to watch the agenda every night? You know, I, after, a, after a day of meetings, it's like, I've, 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 I've had it with agendas. I, you know, I want entertainment. Um, but maybe that's part of the problem. So, uh, 
It's actually a little bit funny. With the title of your book, I feel like you give interviews a lot of temptation to say, oh, well, there's the big question. I'll just ask him with that. So, uh, you know, how many interviews on this book have started off with uh, the question, so are we too dumb for democracy? And maybe perhaps more interestingly, what have you learned about how people have engaged with that question since you released your book? I, I, can, I cannot for the life of me tell you how many lots. And in fact, almost every interview has that question at some point. And good. I mean, the I wouldn't have chosen the title if I didn't think I had an answer to that question because there's a question mark in the title. So plainly, people are gonna mm. are gonna want to know what the answer is. And there was some strategy behind that because it allows me to answer in the negative. It allows me to say no, we're not, but we're encouraged to be. And if you can have a snappy answer to a snappy title, then you've got yourself a hook and and, and in part a way into a broader discussion. And I found that I was a little bit nervous about the title because it's a little bit silly and a little bit flippant. But the fact is people engage with it. It came from CBC. So years ago, I did an episode of Ideas about my doctoral research. It must have been 2014 or 2015, something like that. And it was CBC who, who came up with Too Dumb for Democracy, full stop. Yeah, and so when the book came around, I wrote them and said, can I use this title? Now, fun fact, you can't copyright a title. So, <laughs> so <laughs> in certain circumstances, there are times where there are things you can copyright but, you know, too dumb for democracy as a headline, for instance, isn't copyrighted. So they said, yeah, go for it. But but thinking back to the episode, I remember it airing and, and ideas goes out to a lot of people, right? Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Canadians listen to it live. And I thought, well, here it comes. Boy, we're going to we're in trouble now because we've just called hundreds of thousands of people too dumb for democracy. And so I listened to the episode. I went to bed. I woke up the next morning and I expected the the deluge. And instead, what happened was people were writing in messaging saying, I loved the episode. I especially loved the title, dot, dot, dot. I know exactly who you're talking about. Exempting themselves and thinking of their neighbor or their doctor or their lawyer or their partner or whomever it might be, right? Or their family, everyone else but them. So the the title, for the most part, has been productive and a useful hook. And I, I grew to love it. I didn't love it at first, but I certainly grew to love it. And I'm, I'm glad we've gone with it. So uh, I guess we've given away the end of the book at the beginning of the interview. But yeah, you you don't think we're too dumb for democracy. But uh, the thing that I love so much about this book is it takes pains to walk us through everything that is stacked against us. And alarmingly, this starts with just who we are as people and how our brains work. So my, one of my big takeaways and is that, you know, while democracy asks us to make rational decisions and participate based on new ev- information and evidence, that uh, our brains are much better at automatically reverting to heuristics and icons and emotions and all the gut stuff that happens. And so the role of neuroscience and psychology in your work is super foundational. And I'm wondering how it felt. You talk in in the forward a little bit about, you know, stumbling on that, how poorly suited we are to actually doing democracy. How did you end up at like a cautiously hopeful place? What was that journey like for you? Well, there tend to be, there are sort of caricatures of human beings when it comes to thinking about complex phenomenon like politics. There's the sort of enlightenment rationality caricature of the perfectible human mind, right? We, we are born to know 
We are born to process. We are born to know well. We're born to reason. We are sort of dispassionate, calculative thinking machines, and we can perfect ourselves in our minds. And so, of course, if that's your view of, of human cognition, then we are built for politics and we're built for complex democratic politics. And then there's the sort of caricature that would say, no, no, we're just, we're too stupid. We just, we're animals, we're emotional, we're driven by our gut, full stop. We can't possibly process this. We just sort of pick a team that we like and then we bash each other over the head until one's left, one team's left standing. And of course, as always, the, the truth is more complicated than that. And we, I came to, I started out closer to the second category than the first, you know, deeply yeah. concerned about this. But I, over time, came to think, well, you, you know, it, it, what we end up with is a combination of our capacity and our institutions and the world in which these things are shaped. So, you, you know, we're not too dumb for democracy. Sometimes we are, but we're not inherently too dumb for democracy. But we are going to be incentivized, shaped, constrained, directed, so on, by the institutions and the systems in which we live. So we ought to be very careful about how we design them and how we use them so that we can make better political decisions. And this is you know, supported by all kinds of data from psychology to neuroscience and, and history and so on. I mean, sociology, anthropology, you know, most people would say, yeah, okay, we're, we're emotionally driven. We like to take the path of cognitive least resistance. We rely on heuristics. Uh, we make snap judgments and so on. And yet we have phenomenal capacity when we have the opportunity to exercise it and when we're incentivized to exercise it. So then it becomes a question of saying, okay, well, how do we maximize good political decisions and minimize bad ones, right? Rather than saying, can we even do this? Because plainly we can. And, and I think once you move from the caricatures onto a question of, okay, well, how do we use what we've got to do the best we can, then you can start to become productive. And so that's what I do with the book. I, you know, it's three. It's, it's split into three. Section one is here's the ideal. Section two is here's how we fall short of the ideal. Section three is here's how we can approximate the ideal through a series of personal actions or practices and institutional changes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I will say like the emotional journey of, of reading this book is understanding a framework in the first. Then, you know, partway through the second, just being really despondent about how much the deck is stacked against us. You know, the third part actually is really where I felt my energy start to pick up a little bit again and be like, oh, actually, no, like, these are actually like tangible things we could do to address this. Uh, so yeah, I was, was, was super curious about, you know, in, in coming to this, the, the crafting of this book, if the journey uh, for you approximated, you know, the structure of the book or, you know. It did. And I think not so much the book as my dissertation. So the book is, is my doctoral work that I did at UBC. And then I committed the ultimate academic sin. I became the ultimate heretic by taking all the work I'd done with my dissertation and turning it into a book that people would read. You know, which <laughs> you're not really incentivized to do. And I talk about incentives in academia. You're meant to sort of go and take your dissertation and publish it in a academic press. But I didn't want to do that. I wanted the book to be accessible. I wanted it to be full of characters and stories. And I wanted it to be affordable. Right. And that's one of the big things is with a lot of academic presses, books aren't affordable. You know, so that's what I did. But in the, in the dissertation, this was effectively the arc of my work. And I remember 
the it's such a cliche, but it's true. I remember the day that I came up with my research question. And, you know, for those who are doing research projects or for, or for those who are trying to tackle difficult, complex problems, the best advice I can give is come up with a question. Once you get the question, then you've, you've sort of drawn a circle around the thing. And I remember the day, and for my, my dissertation, it was, can we make rational, autonomous political decisions through deliberation, through democratic deliberation? That was the question that started all of my work, the dissertation in the book. And, it, it, you know, I, I started out being skeptical. And then I dug through the, the literature and found that, okay, well, we should be a little bit skeptical, but we should also be hopeful because obviously we can make good decisions. We can be rational. We can use evidence to reach conclusions. Now, what what happens later through the policymaking process, that's different. <laughs> we can get into the, <laughs> the challenges of that, because, but also it should be different because we disagree about what those good decisions are and what those policies should be. And so every time someone says to me, well, well, this is obvious, my response is, obvious doesn't matter in politics. Science doesn't matter in politics. None of that matters in politics prior to a democratic process. It matters through the process. But, but you know, as my supervisor, Mark Warren, used to say, in a democracy, science has no pre-political authority, right? Ditto, ditto common sense, ditto, you know, what's obvious to you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So... But prior to that process, you can do the, your own work of, of reaching good conclusions, and then we can find a way to bring good deliberation, good decision-making into the political process so that we've got two ends. We've got you know A and B. Our own internal decision-making capacity gets better, and our collective procedural decision-making capacity gets better, and then we produce better decisions. And all, and all of this is premised on a, a deliberative approach to, to democratic decision-making you know, a, a reason-giving based approach. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that I'm not spoiling the book here, but I think is such one of the most useful conceptions in the book is the concept of a good political decision. Because it's funny, the title kind of draws you in and you're like, oh, how do, how do I get to a good political decision that will tackle climate change? Because that is a good political decision. But actually, a good political decision is something a little bit more process-oriented. And I, I, I like that calling back to process, reasons with information that we had the autonomy to come to actively. One of the things that I, I was thinking about as I read this book is, you know, you make a really strong argument that we need to do a better job of focusing on on the process of coming to decisions and what we put into that process. But it seems like it just so much of our public discourse is motivated more by outcome than process. Like talking to people about democracy and institutions and how we can reshape them is just, I don't know, like imagining trying to pitch that on my last campaign rather than like lowering taxes and building more buses and getting you to work five minutes faster. Like, um, so I'm, I'm curious if you've done any thinking sort of since the book or as part of it as like how to how to package that discussion. Um, oh, yeah. And, and I mean, I have private conversations with people in in the private sphere and the public sphere across party lines and with just general population folks who who want to wrap their heads around political decision making. So there's a sort of private campaign that I've been on to push this, but I wouldn't ever make it a marquee plank in my election campaign if I'm a political party, because one of the things that reading this research will tell you is that's not going to resonate with people. <laughs> you know, it's just not. And that's fine yeah, because that's just not who we are. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. 
and it doesn't mean it doesn't work. It, it just means that if you're going to run a campaign, you're going to have, you know, whatever, three to five things you're going to highlight, maybe fewer even, and then a bunch of things you're not, but they're still going to be there. We, we all see platforms and websites and stump speeches. There, there are things in there that don't make page one, but they're there. And it doesn't mean they're not important uh, if, if they're buried. So what I say is it is good hygiene. You don't have to lead with it, but you should do it. And and not only is it good hygiene, not only is it important, my argument is that it's actually foundationally important and existentially important. Getting the process right is how we sustain democracy, especially right now. So the stakes are extraordinarily high. And I went out of my way to try to write a, a, a sort of nonpartisan book. I, I'm not a party partisan. I'm a market socialist, so I have a politics, but I, I'm making a procedural argument that's meant to be sort of, you know, free from specific substantive conclusions. It was slightly marketed differently. So if you read the catalog copy, sort of, we look at, oh no, Ford, oh no, Trump. I would argue their election, both of their elections were not great moments for democracy for procedural reasons and substantive reasons, but that's a different debate, <laughs> but, but procedurally. So I come back and say, look, you know, a good political decision is rational, autonomous, consistent, and shareable, right? It should be based on stuff that's true and stuff, and, and stuff that you can share. So it's rational. It's autonomous. You should be able to have reasons for your preferences that you can come up with and that are your own, not someone else's product of trying to manipulate you. It should be consistent. So small changes, in, for instance, in the way things are wording or whether or not you're asked in the morning or in the afternoon or before or after a meal shouldn't change it. And you should be able to communicate these preferences to the world in a way that can be received, right? That's a good decision. And if my argument is if we can agree on a good process, then we could produce better decisions that will be more legitimate and longer lasting, but also substantively better. Because if I were to say to you, here's a good political decision, it's anything that, you know, supports market socialism. And you say, I don't, I just don't agree with that. You know, because I don't, my, that's not my politics. Then we've got nowhere to go. So if we can agree to the procedure, then we have somewhere to go. And, and so that's the whole spirit of deliberative democracy. And again, when I'm talking to politicians, we're talking to audiences or business leaders, I ultimately put it this way. We can either do this the sort of easy way now or the hard way later, but the hard way is going to be worse. It's almost like, you know, we, we need to go somewhere. We disagree about where to go. But if we don't get in the van, we're not going to we're not going to go anywhere. Yeah. And, and again, I mean, there are, are we can see these moments looking back through history where it was plainly obvious, certainly in retrospect, but to some extent must have been obvious at the time that there was something wrong with the institutions of, of, of the polity. And something needs to be something needs to be done, right? You see that in Athens, in ancient Athens, that tears itself apart internally and leads to foreign invasion. You see that in ancient Rome. You see that in the lead up to the French Revolution. You see that in the lead up to the American Revolution. You see that in the lead up to the Arab Spring. And you see that now, globally, in countries like the United States, and even to some extent in Canada. And that doesn't mean you can predict and say, okay, well, you know, on, on May 
21st of 2022, there's going to be a revolution. But it does allow you to say, okay, we're, we're, we're reaching a point at which who knows what's going to happen, but something's coming and we better deal with it, right? And we're at that point now, I think, both in terms of, of sort of a global, a shift in the global political order, but also in terms of major threats like climate change and the rise of authoritarian populism and so on. And so we've, we'd better manage the process now because if we wait, we're just not, we're going to lose the capacity to do it and then forget it. There's just no coming back from that. I'm a, I'm a former policy staffer um, in the public service who then became a political staffer for the liberals. And one thing that I can say um, is that you have kind of some of the dynamics of partisanship spot on and that those institutions that you were just talking about are not always great at looking inward and asking themselves tough questions about how they need to change. I mean, I think if you took a poll of most of my peers that I worked with, you'd find a lot of open-minded people who want more democracy, more inclusiveness in our society, who want good political decisions to be made. But it's also true that you know it's taken for granted that the best way to achieve these goals in the context of a party is to win and to do whatever it takes to win. And you know, one of the solving that would be a great problem when we win. That dynamic not going to anywhere. We see political parties engage in all kinds of bad behavior that subverts democracy, like reinforcing biases, holding back new info that is relevant, um, promoting the use of heuristics and manipulation. Uh, we also have party in you know, parties that are just resistant to change like any institution is. So I'm curious, like, if you are someone working in an institution, uh, a listener of the show who works for a politician or something like that, what is something that you can do, like, do to promote good decision making as sort of defined in the context of your of your book? Well, <clears throat> I mean, step one is, is well, it depends. I mean, if, if it's about sort of personal improvement, there's a number of, of things you can do personally. I mean, you know, setting aside a little bit of time to deliberately think about thinking goes a long way, right? To say, okay, I want to I wanna interrogate my own biases. I want to think about how I react to when I hear something, you know, a program that's launched by the Ford government, for instance, or even a backtracking of the Ford government. You know, I've had to check myself a bunch during during Ford's time when he's done something that I thought was inappropriate or wrong and then later changed his mind. My instinct is to go on the attack. But what if your instinct was to say, oh, good, that's what right. should happen, <laughs> right? And, and we, we thought, okay, I'm going to open up space that politicians can make mistakes, change their mind, and be rewarded for that rather than doubly penalized. You know, you, so that's one thing is, is sort of thinking about what your reactions to things are and what that tells you. Another thing is surrounding yourself with people who are going to disagree, but disagree in good faith, and, and then trading reasons back and forth, including information sources, varying your information sources. I mean, part of this is just kicking yourself off of cognitive autopilot and not defaulting to being defensive about everything. And that's really hard to do, especially in an environment such as a political party or certainly an election, or even just day-to-day -day in, in a legislature, because all the incentives and the culture push you the other way. And you still get good things done that way, but you get fewer good things done. And they're not as good as they might be. So part of it is just kicking off of cognitive autopilot and working against that, that sort of default position of being... Um, on the offensive all the time 
uh, now the, the of course that's easy to say and it's hard to do when you think well what's the other side going to do yeah. right you know it, nobody wants to be the first to unilaterally disarm um, so the question then becomes, well, how do you start to change the culture and the institutions? And my argument is, well, you've got to adopt, even modestly, some processes that will make things better. And, you know, a, a deliberative assembly or a deliberative council or even a deliberative discussion can go a long way in doing that. And we see some of that already. You know, when committees are at their best, mm. they're deliberative. There's still partisan. There's still disagreement, and I'm all for that because I don't want to smooth conflict over entirely. I, I think it's anti-democratic to do that. But when we're sitting down and recognizing the person sitting across from us, not as, a, as an enemy, but as an interlocutor, someone with whom we might disagree, but that we recognize as, as someone who deserves to be at the table in is a partner in, in a discussion, we can then trade reasons back and forth for and against. And we, again, we might not agree. We might not come to the same conclusion, but at least we can recognize that that person is trying to find an answer. And so are we, and then we can trade information and, and reasons back and forth. And if we can make our committees more deliberative, if we can make our legislatures more deliberative, if we can even make our offices more deliberative, thinking from the perspective of a staffer, uh, then you produce better outcomes. And, you know, back in the day, John Rawls thought the U.S. Supreme Court was the ultimate deliberative body. Now, this is the Supreme Court of the 1960s. I don't think he'd think that of the Supreme Court of, of, of the last few years, the last decade or a few decades. But the, the, model, the Canadian Supreme Court probably reflects some of what we're after in that deliberation. And counterintuitively, part of what makes that possible is that it happens privately. And and so one of the, the things we ought to think about is when is it appropriate to be public and when is it appropriate to be private? And there's some wisdom in knowing when deliberations ought to be private. And I, I think in democracy, we obsess with transparency, but we forget that sometimes transparency is actually counterproductive, that ultimately you need accountability. And people should have access to information, should have access to documents, and so on. But there are moments where conversations need to be confidential. And in fact, you get better outcomes when that's true. Cabinet table, for instance. The Supreme Court deliberations, for instance. And in-camera sessions of committees, right? That should be used sparingly, but we should also recognize that that's critically important and come to accept that accountability and transparency don't require everything to be open all the time. One of the ideas that is a popular conception on the left, uh, where you know I spend most of my time, is that the problem really is use the example of the Democrats and the Republicans in the states. You know, lots of Democrats who want to find compromise positions, and lots, uh, and then you know you have an extremely stubborn, recalcitrant, taking every inch you give them, not willing to have that confidential, vulnerable discussion. If you if you live in a democracy where one side is not willing to engage at all. Is it piling onto that? Is that conception that it's all one side's problem actually the problem? Well, in, in terms of is it is it fixable? I mean, I I think step one is we need to think of of democracies as democratic systems, and this is something that deliberative Democrats talk about. And they say, okay, well, we we need to think of a political system or democratic system in which there are courts, there are legislatures, there are protests. 
there's civil disobedience, there's deliberative assemblies, there's other forms of direct action. There's all kinds of different things. And it's not just about saying, okay, everything is going to be hyper-democratic and participatory and egalitarian, and, or everything's going to be elected, or everything's going to be X, Y, or Z. That's actually, like, we want a diversity of sites and a diversity of approaches. So you're going to have different outlets, and those outlets are going to have different rules, and they're going to produce different sorts of outcomes. In in terms of of, of whether or not, say, the U.S. legislature can become deliberative again, my sense is not anytime soon. And if I'm the Democrats, I am not going to try to deliberate in the face of right. Donald Trump because that's just not going to do anything, right? And and I mean, to be a deliberative Democrat or, or to, to be concerned about a good political system is not to be a martyr. It doesn't mean you, you need to give up strategy. And in fact, I would argue that to some degree, there needs, there needs to be some basic conditions to make these things possible. And if you can't establish those basic conditions, then in many cases, a lot of things I'm talking about just won't work. Right. And, and the U S is a hard test of, of that because what's happened is the, the partisan identities of, of participants in all three branches of government and, and in the general population is so toxic that you, you can't deliberate your way out of that until you're able to get some probably, uh, to some extent, a grassroots movement, but also elites who want to do something different. And, and now you might be able to privately bring together a group of elites who say, okay, we've got to change course. Or in, or have mass movements of folks who put in elites who want to do better, but I, I don't. You can't just deliberate your way out of that. You need to replace. You need to cut the rot out, right? And and you don't deliberate your way out of that. You organize your way out of that. You march your way out of that. You vote your way out of that. Or, or let's be honest. Or you backroom your way out of that to some yeah. extent, right? And or more likely, it's probably some mix of all of it. So there, there needs to be that, and, and the Democratic Party is trying that. I don't think we'll we'll see what happens with with Joe Biden, but you know, I, I don't think Biden versus Trump is going to be one of those moments where we get better politics. <laughs> I think things will actually get worse, and of course, I, I'd much prefer Biden winning to Trump. I think as as anyone who's not a sort of rabid accelerationist would, but that doesn't mean Biden's good. So, so there'll be, that'll play out, but hopefully there's some combination of elite mass movement in the U S where better folks are put in and that creates conditions for deliberation, but I'm not holding my breath. I mean, I, I think the decline of the U S state and certainly empire are, are locked in, but we'll, we'll, we'll see. But, in in terms of is it just one side? Yeah, probably. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's one side is worse than the other. I mean, I think we have this tendency to say, well, it's just everybody does it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the fact is, some people are worse than others, and some organizations are worse than others, and the Republicans are worse than the Democrats uh, across the board in almost all ways. And and I think 
that isn't that that to some extent is a left right thing but i don't really even consider the democrats to be left not real they're sort of center but my point is is you know the, there is a difference between trump and biden there's a difference between mitch mcconnell and nancy pelosi there was a difference between bill clinton and george w bush there was a or, or gore and bush for that matter right there was a difference between walter mondale and ronald reagan and those differences matter but I don't think any of them wanted to be particularly deliberative. And in fact, on top of it, there's there's a real risk that we, we take the sort of civility for deliberation, right? That's sort of like the gentleman's agreement of the United States in the 50s and 60s to be cordial and civil, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which actually masked a lot of oppression and a lot of hate, a lot of racism and so on, right? And, yeah. So we shouldn't mistake that. And in fact, you know, if you read How Democracies Die by Ziblatt and Levitsky, one of the things they say is, if you look, the, the, the decline of the American state in part started with a conflict over civil rights movements in the 60s, that the, the Democrats said, okay, we're going to introduce civil rights. And that, in fact, started a lot of the, the trouble that we saw. They were doing the right thing. They were trying to... to address a, a historical and an ongoing injustice, but it contributed to a decline of the state because of the way that re- racists, you know, especially Republicans, but also Democrats in the South yeah. responded, right? So sometimes you're just beat because your institutional setup is just rotten, right? And then you got to look to a new setup. And I, I think that's the American case. In Canada, we have our own problems, but I, I don't think it's the same thing. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I would agree with that. To, to go back to the conception here of like what a good political decision is, like like so much of, there are so many process fouls and process issues with how that body is working now that, you know, you really need to look at the mechanism, not just sort of the create a new zone for discussion. I'm curious to talk about when we talk about how to make better decisions, you talk about a range at the end of your book about moving from, you know, there's a couple of really, really cool ideas like mandatory paid citizens assemblies where like people get time off to go and discuss issues, two days off for voting, one to research, one to actually vote, having governments create spaces that are citizen led, um, which as a uh, former government uh, person, I can personally attest to not always being great at. Yeah. <laughs> Some of it uh, is more personal behavior, like, you know, wanting to think, and we talked a little bit about that, um, that are more sort of like, how do we teach people better personal goals that we could accomplish through education? So I, I'm curious, in the time since you've written the book, have any of those avenues that you discussed jumped out as particularly promising, potential for movement, you know, like, I, you know, we were talking a little bit before about how the stuff is held behind an academic door sometimes. And, you know, for that stuff, is there is there stuff that uh, we should be thinking of, like, prioritizing? And is there stuff that you think has potential to go the furthest? Well, having, having very little or even perhaps nothing to do with me, I mean, d- the sort of deliberative assemblies are becoming more and more common. And there are groups that do these this work, like Mass LBP, for instance, the sort of uh, uh, non-government groups. But there are governments who would look at these things too. I mean, we British Columbia has done them a couple of times, uh, uh, well, actually, for different things, but including electoral reform. Ontario did electoral reform in 07. BC did it in 05. Uh, their neighborhoods are doing these things. Participatory budgeting is common. Glo- Ireland is is 
holding deliberative assemblies. Mongolia has adopted deliberative mechanisms. I mean, they're they're popping up all the time. And there's a great resource called Participedia, I think .net. It's like Wikipedia for democratic innovations. And you can mm-hmm. go and look through all the different things that are being done. And you see that there are participatory budgeting exercises and deliberative assembly exercises happening all over the world, including here in Canada. So th- this stuff is happening. My, I mean, my one of my sort of crusades is to get it to become more common both municipally, provincially, and actually as well federally. So that that I think is promising. If I could choose one thing, if they said to me, okay, you get one thing, this is the thing you can accomplish in your life, this is the change you could make, it would be a series of citizens' assemblies that would be used to agenda set. That we would have, you could do this federally, provincially, or otherwise, but I'm thinking federally, you could have a series of deliberative citizens' assemblies where you randomly choose citizens to come in, spend a period of time learning and talking, and then they come up with a list of things that they want dealt with, you know, under under broad headings, right? Healthcare, national defense, climate, and come up with a series of policy recommendations. The reason that's valuable is, is it depoliticizes some of the partisan bits, not necessarily to produce outcomes because we want accountability, but to produce recommendations. And that shows politicians where people are. And it puts new ideas into the into the firmament where people can look. And it draws citizens into the process. It creates trust. And it creates civic nodes because those who participate in these things become better citizens and they become touchstone for other citizens. And we could do this. An enterprising political party that cared about democratic reform institutions could do it tomorrow. Well, post-COVID, you know, COVID. the <laughs> pandemic complicates things, although these things can be done remotely, but I'm thinking long-term once we, we figure out pandemic. You heard it here, folks, uh, author David Mosgrop <laughs> advocating everyone getting in one room. Yes, everyone's right. Uh, we, we, you know, if we, that said, if we can do parliament by Zoom or whatever it is that they're doing, we could, we could do this too. But yeah, exactly. Let's, let's, let's hold off on the citizens assemblies until we have a vaccine ideally. But in the long run, this idea is that to the extent that you can get citizens to help set the agenda, you're better off. And and you'll notice throughout this, this entire discussion, I'm not talking about getting rid of elected representatives. I'm not talking about getting rid of legislatures. I want both of those things. I'm not even talking about getting rid of partisanship. I want partisanship. I don't trust a world in which we don't have it because I don't trust the world in which we are a bunch of loose fishes that can't coordinate or a monolith that dominates. I don't want either of those things. Yeah. But I do want more responsible, less toxic, more productive partisanship. And I do want it to be offset by citizen engagement. The biggest barrier to that is politicians. By far. Yeah. Because they don't want to do it. <laughs> Right. Oh yeah, and and I would argue that it goes deeper than just the politicians. Like, I, uh, if I'm thinking back to my time in a in a minister's office, we say uh, we want to go out and talk to a bunch of people. That is immediately thought of as a consultation, and we'll, you'll get a very detailed and well done work plan of here's a bunch of meetings you can have, and they'll, yeah. they'll be facilitated, and we'll take notes. And um, at no point will there be a direct link between what comes out of those and the power of cabinet to make decisions, because one of the things the OPS and every ministry is entrusted to do is to um, protect the decision-making power of the minister. And, yeah. um, you know, uh, unless 
direct instructions are given to change that, uh, you know, it's like, even if you ask the civil servants for it, they won't give it to you. No. So it's funny. There's a great book called uh, democratic illusion by, by, um, Fuji Johnson. And she sort of, she traces a, a series of participatory democratic exercises across Canada. There were different things, you know, nuclear waste management, community housing, um, official languages. There's a handful of them. And she says, in all of these cases, people cared. People, including politicians, individuals cared, they engaged, they produced good outcomes, but something happened along the way <laughs> and there was no uptake. So there's a lot of institutional inertia that prevents uptake, including the things you talk about. And again, I mean, it's it's important to have those things because we want accountability. There's a reason that we want ministers making decisions. There's a reason we want a legislature enacting policy and law it's so that polit- so that people when it comes time to have an election can say okay i like that or i don't like that i'll vote accordingly and they can hold politicians to account hence the power of agenda setting rather than than making every decision or making very specific types of decisions like constitutional decisions so uh, or hyper-local decisions, depending on what it might be. So, you're, But again, what I would say to staffers and ministers and who say, well, that's our job, we don't give up the power, is you can either let people in now or you can wait and they're just going to let themselves in. But if they let themselves in, it's going to be worse, far worse. And, and that's point one. Point two would be it's not a zero-sum game. If you let people in, you you produce better citizens and better decisions, and then everybody is better off. You just need to be willing to think that maybe you don't have all the answers, that maybe other people do have them, and that it might be worth working with those folks to produce something that everyone can enjoy and we can all be better off with. But that means you need to get over yourself a little bit, and you need to get over the institutional inertia that tells you that it's dangerous to go out into the world and talk to people. It's dangerous to do it poorly, but we know how to do it well, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and we can do, we have the technology. We can do it. So uh, finally, uh, last uh, sort of question for today. Uh, I learned a new word I really liked from your book, and that was deepity. I'd never heard of a deepity <laughs> yeah, before. Me neither. But what a great uh, concept. Uh, I love it. Um, for those listening, a deepity is a phrase that has two interpretations, one that is meaningless and one that seems to be profound but is actually meaningless. The great example used, I think, by the inventor of the word deepity is love is just a word. Um, Make America great again, uh, you list as uh, another example. And so I'd like us to go out maybe today um, if we could rate the deepity-ness of the following real political slogans on maybe a scale of one to ten. Oh, well, let me first say that it's Daniel Dennett who came up with this. That I, I didn't I didn't know about it either until I came across Dennett. And isn't that the greatest thing? It's sort of like truthiness. It's got that 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 hook. Yeah, I've been I've been trying to find deepities in song lyrics. Oh, song lyrics. They're everywhere in song lyrics. And so I don't think any of these are perfect deepities, but so I, I that's why I'm doing a scale of one to ten so okay. currently currently steven del duca is pushing this love the phrase ontario is in the fight of its life oh i'm gonna give it a seven and here's why when are we not in some sort of fight <laughs> and when is when do the stakes not seem high like presumably if you're 
a, a province like Ontario, the stakes are always high and you're always in a fight. Yes. And uh, every pol- for every politician, uh, every election is the most important election of our lives. Oh, obviously. Yeah. And, and, and of course, it is always oh, 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 uh, game changer. Can we, can we can we just can we agree collectively to stop talking about game changers? <laughs> they almost never exist. You know, there's a great book, uh, a couple of political scientists, uh, I think it was Vavrik and Sides. I, I think it's The Gamble. I, I can't remember which one exactly, but they're political scientists. And they say, oh, the media loves talking about game changers. And when you study it, you realize that almost nothing is ever a game changer, including in debates, right? Oh, wait, where's the <laughs> knockout punch? Like, nobody cares. It doesn't really matter. Relax. <laughs> it's not a game changer. You just want to say that because, you know, we're, we're looking for some drama. COVID is a game changer. Climate change is a game changer. These things happen once every couple of decades, not, you know, four or five times a news cycle. Um, okay, what about uh, for what's best for our lives for the people? <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, that's. I'm gonna give that a ten. That, that's that is, a, that is utterly meaningless. And in whenever you can say which people and not get an answer, it's a ten. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, choose forward. Oh, that's a ten. <laughs> and every time I hear it, I think of the Simpsons. Right? Yeah. Upward, not downward. Forward, not backwards. And twirling, twirling towards freedom. Yeah, I, I got to think that, uh, so the Choose Forward was the uh, Justin Trudeau's liberals. Uh-huh. The uh, Green Party had the most Simpsons one, which was not left, not right, forward. And I was kind of like, nobody on that campaign staff has seen the Simpsons. Or someone has, and they've really done a number. <laughs> uh, and finally, last one, it's time for you to get ahead. You know, I, I'm going to, I'm going to, well, no, you know what? I, I'm going to say nine. I'm going to say nine because... You know, it does solve to some extent the question of who do you mean you, but it also encourages everyone to think about themselves and not everyone else. So I'm going to give it a nine, not a 10, but it's also terrible. Uh, Is that the conservatives? Yeah, that was Andrew Shears. Oh, remember Andrew Shear? Whatever happened to him? He's giving a uh, if for for news nerds he is uh, giving us a hard time forgetting he's like the only person that's come out uh, you know saying that we need to get people off the CERB and back into the workplace as soon as possible and um, that's uh, gonna that that's gonna age poorly by the fall when this thing hits us again but of course Andrew Shear will be gone by then so <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, David, uh, thank you so much for being so generous with your time talking to us. Um, the book is uh, Are We Too Dumb for Democracy? It is available wherever good books are sold, uh, virtually in many, many different ways. And so thank you so much for coming on, Ontario Lad. My absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that is all the time we have for today. I want to send a big thanks to David Mosscrop for appearing on Ontario Loud in our second inaugural book club. Want to know what you think of these book clubs if you're enjoying them? I know there are a ton of fun to do as a host, just like getting into a book and then getting to talk to the author. Um, if anyone told me that all you need to do is start a podcast to do that, I would have started years ago. Ontario Loud is Sam Andre, Guru Tower Kapoor, Alexi White, Alvin Tejo, and me. I'm Chris Martin. Aisha Anwar and Harmon Muddy do our socials and our research. We will be back Friday, hopefully with a roundup of this week's news. And next week, doing some other stuff. I don't know. We need to have a scheduling discussion. We need to figure out what we're doing next week. 
I'm going to be honest with you about that because this podcast is a zone for honesty. Talk to you soon. Have a good week.